You can't hear me. Good morning, ladies. Ooh, there's some sound. <laughs> We're all like, where's Jess? She's up there in the sound booth. Good morning. You will have to please excuse me today. I did wake up with a voice today, which yesterday I did not. So very grateful to the Lord for um, giving me that grace. So good morning. Here we are in week nine, or nine, right? Nine? Goodness. Why don't we open in a word of prayer? Father, we come to you and ask that you speak to us today. We need you to teach us. We need your spirit to open our minds and our hearts and our ears and help us to hear what you have to teach us and to show us yourself and your son. I pray that you will calm our hearts and limit the distractions. I pray that you would give me clarity in my thoughts and in my speech and my voice would be strong. We just look to you, Father, we look to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, <clears throat> before we dive into our passage for this week, um, I want to do a little history lesson. So um, I thought, hang in there, bear with me, it won't be horrible. Um, it might help with the cultural context in which Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. Um, so let's, let's just dive in. So we already know that Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to oversee the church that was there and to ensure that true sound doctrine would be taught and preached, but also upheld and protected. And he was to confront the false teachers. And he was to teach the flock there in the church how the church was to be structured and how um, the characters, the godly characteristics that their leaders would have and then also how, to, uh, how they were to behave in relationship to one another within that household of God. And this letter to Timothy was written in the first century AD, about the year 64. But in order to understand some more of the conflict that Paul and Timothy and other early church leaders were dealing with, we're going to move back in history. We're going to move back like six, seven hundred years. Um, all the way back to the Greek philosophers. <laughs> Don't be scared. <laughs> I hated that in history class, by the way. <laughs> uh, Greek philosophy began to have an influence on the culture in the late 7th century um, BC into the 6th century, moving forward. And keep in mind now that Paul and Timothy, they're in the 1st century AD. So we're way back here. So six to 700 years earlier, there began to be these deep, uh, intellectual inquiries into questions like, what is the cause of our existence? Or um, what is the nature of God? What is the nature of the human soul? What is my purpose for living? What is justice and virtue, knowledge, or truth? And while these questions were addressed in ancient times through religion, the process of, of uh, logically and methodically thinking through these life's questions outside of religion didn't really systematically begin until about the late 7th century BC. And the three most well-known Greek philosophers whose names I'm sure you're familiar with are Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And Aristotle, who was in the 4th century BC, is known for his development of the basis of the study of logic or of reason. 
He was searching for truth and wisdom. He was also anxious about the primary purpose of things and how people could have a good life. Now, we have the word of God right before us in our possession, and we know that it is indeed the source of all wisdom and truth. But before the printing press was developed, which was like the 15th century AD, um, the common man didn't have a Bible to read. They were dependent on the teachings that were passed down through the generations about the truth of God and the purposes uh, in the, his purposes in the world and for his people. What is known to us now as the Old Testament was tediously hand-copied on scrolls of papyrus and kept in synagogues. And they would have these schools, schools where the men would come starting as boys and they learned at the feet of the um, rabbis, the religious leaders. So knowledge was handed down. It was taught. It was passed on. And so Greek philosophy became very popular because they challenged people's knowledge and their underlying assumptions and taught them how to think for themselves. They taught people how to find goodness in themselves. Then they had these new schools, new schools of thought, new, new ideas were being developed. So the Greek philosophers were lovers and seekers of knowledge, and they examined their surrounding world through reason and logic. And Aristotle taught that a speaker's ability to persuade an audience is based on how well the speaker appeals to the audience in three different areas. There's the logos, which appeals to reason, ethos, which appeals to the writer's character, like am I a good guy, um, and pathos, which appeals to the emotions and the sympathies. And you know, these three areas of rhetoric or persuasive speech are still used today in advertising. You'll see this in commercials. So log, the logos, this is what we're going to focus on. It appeals to reason. The Greek philosophers used the word logos as a technical term to describe the essence of divine reason in the world. To them, it was this impersonal, abstract um, principle of reason and order in the world, how it all made sense, our existence, our purpose, where it all goes from here. Logic, or logos, was a created force and the source of wisdom. And this is what the great thinkers, the writers, and the educators of the day all subscribe to. Now let's fast forward to the first century. Greek philosophy had had a huge impact on Roman philosophy as well. So when Christ came, born of a woman in a Roman-occupied Israel, there were generally two groups of people. The religious Jews who prided themselves on knowing God and keeping the Old Testament law of Moses, and they found their goodness in their works. And then there were the pagan culture of the Romans and the Greeks, who widely accepted the, accepted the, goodness, the philosophical meaning of logos, and they found their goodness in themselves. In scripture, these, this group is often referred to either as the Greeks or the Gentiles. So now let's move forward in the first century, and you have to think about what did the Apostle John open his gospel with? In John 1.1, he said this, In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. So think about how that fits into the Greek philosophical thinking. Jesus is the Logos. 
Jesus is the full revelation of God and the perfect wisdom of God and the knowledge of God and the goodness of God. John MacArthur writes this, Logos is not an impersonal source, force, principle, or emanation. True Logos is God becoming a man. Just think about that. Christ is the full and final culmination and completion of all the partial knowledge of truth that was found in the Greek philosophy. And this would have been foreign to both the Jews and the Greeks. Very foreign. So also along with philosophy, the Greek culture was also preoccupied with words. They loved words. They were fascinated with the spoken word. They loved an orator. An orator could draw crowds of thousands at a time. And they had these wise men. They were called sophists. You can hear the word philosophy in there, right? Sophists. They were wise men that would travel from place to place, and they would teach men how to argue cleverly. So kind of like the beginning of our modern-day debate team, right? These sophists were hungry for applause and praise. And if you combine that with crowds who were intoxicated with the spoken word, it was an environment ripe for the spread of all kinds of heresies and false teachings. And this is the backdrop against which the early church was growing up. The early church also was structured differently than most of our churches are in our day today. According to William Barclay, the Christian service was much more informal than it is now. Apparently, anyone could come in, and if they felt that they had a message or a word to speak, they, they, they were permitted to do so. And it's this environment that Paul is addressing in our passage today. So now let's turn to our passage. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 2, the latter end of verse 2. This is the word of the Lord. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Paul starts out with teach and urge these things. And what is it that Timothy is to teach? Right? Last week we dove headlong into the instructions that Paul had given Timothy about how the church should live more in community with one another as the household of God. How we were the family of God. How we were to treat one another with honor and with respect. And so these opening words here are a conclusion to that previous section, but it's also an opening to the passage before us. 
teach and urge these things. These words teach and urge in the Greek are imperative <coughs> verbs. That means that they're not to be avoided. It's, it's expressive of a command. The NIV says it this way, these are the things you are to teach and insist on. The Amplified Version says teach and urge these duties. This isn't something that Timothy, Timothy is to suggest to his people. No, there's an urgency here to teach. This implies any manner of imparting knowledge or skill so that others can learn. And it involves speaking. And since Bibles weren't readily available, people learned from the teachers, right, who would have studied the Old Testament writings and then passed it down. They spoke it to them. So this is especially important when it comes to teaching the doctrines of God because we know scripture does say that um, faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So Timothy is to teach, to speak the words of Christ and people will hear and subsequently through the work of the Holy Spirit, they'll believe and come to faith in Christ Jesus. Teach. People can't learn if there's no teaching. But he's to urge these things. He isn't just to impart the knowledge that he has. Paul has this passion here. There's an urgency. It's a, a responsibility that he has towards those whom he's teaching. There's a weightiness to this responsibility, a gravity, a seriousness to which Timothy is to teach. Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, we persuade others. There's a weightiness to this. These are things that Timothy is to teach and insist on that are of eternal significance. But another reason why Paul is so passionate about this confirms that wrong or false teaching is prevalent in their time. Paul frets about the person with whom Timothy will have to deal who is not devoted to the very teaching that Timothy and the church are charged to uphold and protect. In verse 3, Paul talks about those who are teaching a different doctrine. This isn't the first time that we're hearing this. He talked about it earlier in chapter 1. So that you, Timothy, may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. These were teachers who focused on myths and genealogies, speculations, vain discussions, making confident assertions. Right? This is what the sophists did. This is what they would talk about. And this is the backdrop against which the church had its beginnings. So Paul's warning Timothy that he's going to need to be careful about who he permits to come in and stand before the congregation to speak any word. A different doctrine. And then Paul adds a qualifying statement there. The false teacher does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. The false teacher doesn't agree with Jesus. How could that be? Paul's words are a warning to watch out for those who don't agree with the things that Jesus taught or even the doctrines about Jesus. There were many who didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. The Jews in particular, they denied his deity. But also the false teacher doesn't agree with teaching that lines up or accords with, right, or is in harmony with or consistent with godliness. So this would also tell us that the teachings of Jesus line up with the teachings about godliness. True, sound doctrine will lead to godliness. What is godliness? It's holy living. Living in a manner set apart from the world and for God. We've talked about this in weeks previous. 
The key to godliness is that our belief and our behavior have to line up. They have to line up. You can't say that you believe in certain things and then live like the world. That would be living a lie. Our belief and our behavior are definitely linked. It's to have Jesus in your life to magnify the Lord, to mortify your flesh, which means to subdue or restrain our sin. But also we learned that we need to train ourselves for godliness. Sharia talked about this. We discipline ourselves. We persevere. We hold fast to prayer and Bible reading and Bible study and meditation and memorization in order for the word of God to transform our hearts and minds, teaching that accords with godliness. And Paul warns Timothy repeatedly in this letter to watch out for those who don't agree with the sound doctrine. And then he describes this person in verses 4 and 5. He says, He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So these two verses really allow us uh, to see the impact of how the pagan culture of the philosophy and attraction to the spoken word had on the early church. That was an influence. This false teacher who could be identified not only by what he taught, could be identified by his character. He's, He's filled with pride. He's puffed up with conceit. And these words were also used by Paul back in chapter 3 when he was describing the qualification of elders. He said in verse 6, he must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Humility rather than pride is characteristic of a godly elder who was tasked with teaching the sound doctrine of the faith. And this false teacher doesn't even understand what he's talking about. Paul says right here, he understands nothing. He also talked about this back in chapter 1, in the beginning of the letter. He was speaking of men who desired to become teachers of the law, and yet they didn't understand what they were talking about. So you have to remember that this was a time when men loved to hear words. So the orator would just have a speech filled with words. But according to doctrine, he understood nothing. So uh, one of the commentators, um, Robert Yarbrough, says that the te- this could mean that the teaching that was contrary to sound doctrine might not even be readily uh, recognizable. It could be packaged slickly or advanced and advanced skillfully. Paul wants Timothy de- to develop like this healthy skepticism, skepticism so that he can quickly identify those whom he- Paul had described as ravenous wolves that wanted to come in and were looking to come in and destroy the sheep of his flock. So Paul says to look at the character of such a teacher. What else might he see? He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. An unhealthy craving. The Greek word that is used here actually signifies to be ill, to be ailing, whether in body or mind. Hence, um, to be taken with such a morbid interest in a thing as is tantamount to a disease. It also also means to be foolish, 
or to be unsound. So Paul is saying that one of the characteristics of this false teacher is that they have a morbid interest in two things, controversy and quarrels. So let me ask, have you ever met anyone like this? Right, we all have. Um, They just like to stir up the pot. Have you ever been part of a debate team? I have not. I had a son that was on the debate team. It was horrible. I had to tell him at one point, you do not debate me. Drew the line, drew the line. But I've been told that you don't even have to agree with, right, or accept the side that you're arguing for. Your purpose is to convince the other team that your argument is right. So this is what, this is the, the environment that the early church was growing up in. Men loved words. They loved these controversies. And this was the character of the false teacher, this unhealthy craving or morbid interest in these controversies and quarrels, arguments. And the sophists taught men how to argue cleverly. So rather, the instructions that Paul gave for elders back in chapter 3 stated that men were to be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach with a spirit of gentleness. And in 2 Timothy 2, we read these instructions that Paul wrote to Timothy. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Because what do these controversies and quarrels lead to? So we see a list here in our passage. It's actually fivefold. We see envy. Envy is a feeling of discontent or covetousness with regard to another's advantages, successes, possessions. Some may become envious of the false teacher's influence on people. It can bring resentment among those who aren't really part of the movement. Um, But, you know, they can see the effect that they're having. Envy will not promote a healthy congregation. There's dissension, which is discord or strife. Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. The false teacher's calling card is division. Slander. In the NIV, it says malicious talk. The Greek word used here is the root of our English word for blasphemy. Paul used the same word back in chapter 1 when he described himself as a former blasphemer. He's talking about slanderous, abusive, or otherwise destructive verbal expressions. And this isn't going to promote unity in the family of God. Evil suspicions. Suspicion is, is to doubt or to mistrust. And the false teacher would plant doubt in the mind of the listener. Maybe you don't really want to believe those things you were always taught. You know, just let doubt come in. Then faulty belief systems could develop. Conversely, Paul didn't plant doubt in men's minds. His evidence on the validity of the gospel was based on the accounts of eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8, we read this. This is Paul speaking. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas. That was Peter. I would love to have seen what that conversation was like, right? After Peter had denied his Lord, and then he rose from the dead and he appeared to him. Oh my, 
he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. He bore, he was an eyewitness, right? He bore the testimony, first-hand experience of seeing the risen Christ. There was no doubt there. It's the gospel that is the power of God for salvation, for the Jew first and also to the Greek. Doubt would not promote healthy unity in the household of God. And the fifth thing is, uh, it says, and constant friction. I have to say this phrase in the original language is not preceded by the word and. So it's really not the fifth descriptor in this list, but rather the phrase serves to sum up the other four that preceded. This friction develops among these people, a constant friction, who are depraved in mind, their thinking is corrupted. These divisive controversies and quarrels about words are going to impair the ability to observe clearly and reason logically. Yarbrough says, when Christ and the gospel graces are spurned in favor of human theories and polemics, clear thought is the first casualty. Clear thought is the first casualty. In a religion that depends on being transformed by the renewing of your mind, clouded thought is counterproductive. This friction develops among people who are also deprived of the truth. Literally, it says they are robbed of the truth. False teaching comes in and replaces the truth of the gospel message that it was intended to bring. The verb means to cheat or to deprive others what is theirs by rights. The controversies and quarrels will inevitably cause this constant striction, and they're going to tear down the people of God, the household of God. And then Paul's warnings back in Acts chapter 20 about the ravenous wolves coming in and devouring the flock will become a reality. And this is what Paul is warning Timothy about. Now, a third negative outcome of these controversies and quarrels is the flawed supposition that godliness is a means to financial gain. Paul has already pointed out that these teachers and subsequently their followers are deprived of the truth. So this is one of the falsehoods that they are subscribing to. Godliness is a means of gain. It's important to note that the word translated in the ESV as gain and financial gain in the NIV does not in itself denote fantastic wealth. Nor is he really specifically addressing this health and wealth teachings of the prosperity gospel in our day, though these words could address that heresy for sure. But in Timothy's cultural context, what Paul objects to in his words here is that the false teacher has reduced godliness to mere financial gain or the attainment of material prosperity. So if you have material wealth, if you have a lot of money, a lot of possessions, then you're godly. That's what he's saying. Something fundamentally beyond our comprehension, which is that godliness comes from being in Christ and Christ in us, has been replaced by the mundane, common, everyday things that we have and need. 
Human desires and practical needs have, been, have, have eradicated the longing for God and for the fulfillment that humans can experience with God when we're in relationship with God. The birthright of gospel inheritance has been sold for a bowl of stew, like Esau sold his birthright to Jacob because he despised it, the word of God said. What that means is that he didn't think highly enough of it. He didn't think highly enough of his birthright, and he just sold it for something material. Or the prodigal son who demanded that his father give him his inheritance early so that he could leave the protection of his father's house and go out into the world to experience all that wealth could give him. He thought little of his father and of the protection and security that living close to his father would bring him. The false teacher had reduced godliness to mere financial and material or worldly gain. The gospel was replaced by the mundane, by the common, by human desires and practical needs. No longer did people desire God. But Paul does explain what true godliness is. The godliness that he's promoting is great gain, right? Because it's paired with contentment. Verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So first we really need to define contentment. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary says that contentment is a feeling of satisfaction with one's possession, status, or situation. The Vines Expository Dictionary defines it as the sufficiency of the, necess- the necessities of life, having what you need. So there's a contentment that we can have that's kind of external, right? We have what we need. It's, uh, we like our jobs, our home, our paychecks, right? It's based on our circumstances. It's external. If things are good, we're content. But this contentment that Paul's addressing here is an internal contentment. It's a state of the heart. Paul didn't ascribe to the thinking that he needed to be self-sufficient. This was a teaching of the Stoics at the time. And he also didn't prize the human reason as the source of ultimate truth, which is what the philosophers were teaching. But Paul believed the very words of God, the scriptures, as the source of truth. To live on this earth in the fullest sense of contentment is to have Christ. For Paul, this is the secret of being content in all circumstances, whether in need or in plenty. Listen to what Paul says in his letter to the Philippians. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul knew contentment, and it had nothing to do with material possessions or comfort or financial security. Whereas the false teachers promoted godliness itself as a means of gain, Paul says that godliness, when accompanied with inner contentment, is that satisfaction that is grounding in knowing Christ, that that is great gain. Then he gives a reason for living with this contentment grounded in Christ. Verse 7 says, For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. You've heard this statement before, right? Robert Yarbrough says, Birth and death both illustrate the tenuous relation between life and material goods. Paul wants to relativize, not trivialize or eliminate, 
right, the importance of earthly acquisitions, since he observes the people tempted to enlist God in their material quests. But Paul is echoing what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's not what life is about. Yarbrough goes on to say that birth and death both teach that it would be folly to pin even a life philosophy, let alone a Christian theology, on such fleeting hope as material acquisitions. But Paul says if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Paul doesn't negate the basic human needs that we all have, but promotes contentment with no more than life's basics. And Paul isn't saying here that there will never be times when basic needs aren't being met in this life, right? We all know situations where extreme poverty is a reality. Paul knew hardships, trouble, imprisonments, hunger, beatings, right? But Paul also knew that God's grace was sufficient for every need or hardship that he had. And we just read in Paul's, Paul's words in, in Philippians, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm hungry, whether I, my belly is full, whether I have really basic needs that aren't being met, or whether I have plenty. He's learned the secret of being content, and that is found in Christ alone. Paul wants Timothy to know that true godliness with contentment is having a conscious awareness of God's presence. And if you have life's basics on top of that, then you are very rich indeed. In Hebrews uh, 13.5, the writer there says this, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he, God, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. True contentment reveals where your desires lie. But in contrast, let's pick up in verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare or a trap. That's also a snare or a trap. Uh, Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul continues with his warnings, speaking of those who have neither sought nor grasped the deepest riches of the sufficiency of Christ. And this bad teaching that they're hearing, corrupted thinking, have led people to seek their satisfaction or their contentment in in material belongings. And Paul says here that they fall into temptation It paints paints a picture of something that was unexpected. It was something they didn't intend to do. And it's a trap. Thomas Aquinas, who lived in the 13th century AD, said this, Riches are a temptation for those who do not have them and a snare for those who do. The snare captures people into many senseless and harmful desires. And we should point out that desires are God-given. But just as other gifts that God has given can be corrupted because of sin since the fall, so our desires can also become foolish and sinful and corrupted. These harmful desires will plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now that's a picture. The word plunge 
He uses the word plunge. And here this word is used elsewhere in the scriptures to describe people drowning by waves uh, danger enough, dangerous enough to sink a boat. They are plunged. They are drowned. They are lost in ruin and destruction. And these words, ruin and dest- destruction, describe harmful present, uh, present harmful effects which last on into the life to come. In other words, the effect of these desires can lead one astray all the way into eternal judgment. But why do people get drawn into the temptation to get rich? Paul says that in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Now you you took notice, right, that he doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil, right? Money is neither good nor bad. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, we have to keep this verse in context of what Paul is talking about here, and he's been talking about true godliness and true contentment. And we said that 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 involves having a conscious awareness of God's presence. So let's think a moment of Adam and Eve in the garden. They had everything that they could possibly need. They also had the presence of God with them. But instead of keeping their eyes on God and being thankful for all the things that he had given them, and being thankful for his presence with them, they had taken their eyes and they turned them towards the forbidden fruit. And the relationship with God was broken. So the love of money happens when you turn your eyes from the giver to the gift. To the gift. The love of money puts a selfishly built dividing wall between man and God. It also puts a wall between man and neighbor. And Paul calls it a root. He calls it a root because roots are often hidden from view, right? The effects of that root or or the fruit of this love of money might not be revealed immediately. But Paul says all kinds of evil will grow out of this root. Things like sin, and rebellion, selfishness, pride, for starters. It is through this craving, he says, that some have wandered away from the faith. They've turned away, and they've pierced themselves with many pangs. Pierced themselves. The word pierced actually means to impale. That's pretty gruesome, really. But Paul is saying it's a self-inflicted woe. They've pierced themselves by subscribing to loving money. These are sober words, right? This, this is a weighty matter that Paul is addressing here. And this shows the reason why Paul instructs Timothy um, to teach and urge these things. Eternal life and death hangs in the balance. But he doesn't end there. He turns his... Uh, Direction to Timothy, next, verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. This word but tells us that Paul's making the shift. He's speaking directly to Timothy. And there's a sense of passion in his voice. But as for you, Timothy, and he calls him a man of God. Interestingly, this phrase here only occurs in the New Testament in this location, in this place. 
But the Jews would have recognized that. Timothy would have known even. They would have recognized that phrase because Moses was the man of God. And prophets like Elijah and Elisha and even David, they were called by this name, man of God. I wonder if it caused Timothy to do a little gasp, like, (gasps) it's very unlikely that Paul was telling Timothy, you're going to be the next Moses. That is not what he's saying here. But it does speak to the solemn role and responsibility that Timothy, as the leading elder in this church in Ephesus, that he's carrying. It speaks to the gravity of the tradition that God is intending to lead his people through chosen shepherds and leaders who will teach his word. But we also know that these words aren't intended just for Timothy. They're for all of us. Since Timothy was called to a way of life that would be an example to his people in his church and subsequently for us, an example for them and for us to follow. And what is Timothy called to do? To flee these things. What things? All the things that he's been talking about in this letter. He's to flee false teachings and false doctrine. He's to flee pride, controversies and quarrels, the pseudo-godliness of a materialist ministry, and the love of money. Flee these things. And then he tells him what to pursue. Right? The opposite of fleeing, which would be running away from something, is to run after something. So Timothy is to run after this list of six things. Let's talk about these. Righteousness. Living out our union with Christ. This is our progressive sanctification. Right, Not that we will become sinless in this life. We will not. But there's this already but not yet state of being righteous, but also being made righteous. And then there's godliness, which is holy living, putting away sin. That also speaks to our sanctification. Faith, complete trust or confidence in God and his word. What he says is true, is the truth that people are looking for, or they think they're looking for. Love, this speaks to the affection, the goodwill, the um, brotherly love, behavior that's directed towards our fellow believers. Steadfastness, which is an endurance, remaining faithful. Timothy had a rough road ahead of him. We also have rough roads to travel, don't we? We do, and we need to hang on and hold fast and persevere. Gentleness. This conveys the opposite of an overbearing attitude. It speaks to how Timothy was to do his work, not in weakness, but with sensitivity and empathy, and also how we are also to speak as we witness to those in the world around us. So Paul gives Timothy a summary here at the end of our passage this week of what he is to pursue. And Paul needed to impress on him how he was to act in his role in the ministry at this church in Ephesus. And so also for us, it's a summary of how we are also to act, how we are to behave. But we might ask, well, how does one pursue these things? We certainly don't want to make this a list of qualities um, to work on so that somebody can say, oh, yeah, I see this in her, but this one here, not so much. Right? It's not 
a list of things to do. If we try to work at these things in our own flesh, we're going to get nowhere and we're going to fail. And Jesus told us himself in John chapter 15 that without him, we can do nothing. Nothing. We cannot even pursue any of these without him. But what did Jesus tell us to go after? He said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. What things? In the context of Jesus' teaching on that, where that verse sits, he's talking about food and clothing. He's talking about food and clothing. He told us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then these things would be added to you. So we seek, how do we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness? We seek Jesus. We seek Jesus. And we have to see, we see these things that Paul listed for Timothy, we see all of them in Jesus. We see righteousness. Why? In, in 1 Corinthians 1.30 it says, And because of him, because of God, you, those Speaking to us, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Jesus is righteousness. Godliness. Colossians 1.19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You can't get more godly than that. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And also in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus was sinless. Faith. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Love. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19, Paul wrote this, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We can't even come to fully know the love of God through Jesus Steadfastness, consider him who endured from sinners such his hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. That's from Hebrews 12. Jesus shed his blood. He was innocent and he shed his blood willingly. He endured to the end. He knew what was set before him. Gentleness. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So how do we pursue these things? We pursue Jesus. And where do we find him? In his word and on our knees. And what does it mean to pursue Jesus? I found this quote from a Legionnaire ministry website. The key is not to pursue feelings themselves. We don't pursue the feelings of I'm connected to Jesus. But to pursue the Lord Jesus Christ by looking to him, knowing his ways, pondering his promises, and obeying his commands. 
that's going to put you right in here. Faith is what gives birth to the feelings. Feelings don't always come first. That emotional component of the Christian life isn't always present as we would like it to be, right? But we persevere. We hold fast despite how we feel. The feelings come along. They will. We don't pursue the feelings, but we pursue the Lord Jesus Christ. Ladies, we, behold, we become what we behold. We've heard this a lot. We have to behold Jesus. And we do that in his word. In uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul wrote this, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We, in the word of God, have an unveiled face, and we are beholding the glory of the Lord. And that is what transforms us. Because without him, we can do nothing. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to examine our hearts. Help us to come with humility before you. We ask that you would help us to see if we are seeking after things of the world. We need you to transform us, and not only our minds and our hearts, but our desires as well. Give us a hunger and a thirst for your truth, for your word. May we desire to look like Jesus and to reflect him to those in the world around us. We ask all this in your name. Amen.